Kia ora team and welcome to the Beyond the Surface podcast, a platform to dive deep into the minds of incredible Kiwis who have a story worth sharing. My name's Noah Woolof and on today's episode, I sat down with Sophie Hanford, one of New Zealand's youngest politicians at Kapiti Coast District Council and the leader of the biggest protest New Zealand has ever seen, the school strike for climate. I hope you enjoy this conversation and if you do, please remember to leave it a five-star review on Spotify. It goes a long way to helping us reach a new audience. I hope you enjoy this quarter door. Welcome to episode number 11. For those who don't know you, do you mind just giving yourself a bit of an introduction? Yeah, sure. So I'm Sophie. I'm 21 years old. I live in the beautiful Paikakariki on the Kafiri Coast, small seaside village. If you haven't checked it out, definitely would recommend. There's a whole bunch of amazing things to do, good kai to eat, good people to catch up with. Um, so I've, I've grown up there and kind of lived there all my life so far. Um, some other fun facts about me, I guess, I helped to found and coordinate the School Strike for Climate Movement in 2019, 170,000 people out on the streets, that's 3.5, you were one, yeah. yes, and your daughter as well? Um, no, actually, okay, funny story about all of that, which might be a bit of a dampener, but I remember it was originally planned on the 15th of March, March. and... That was the day of my daughter's birthday, but also the day of the Christchurch terror attack. So I, I was there during the sort of start of it. And um, yeah, that was just a fucking crazy time. So now forever, yeah. that date, the 15th of March, is kind of stained. And unfortunately, it's on my daughter's birthday. Oh. It's like, oh, such a, such a bummer. That is, oh, that's such a bummer. And I remember too, like really vividly for us in organising the first strike on that mm. date, like just how, how much of a kind of change that was in New Zealand's history for the worse instead of for the better, which was what we were striving for it to be. I know, I know. Um, it was just then, crazy. Sorry, yeah, and carry on with your introduction. Say, yeah, and then in ramping up to September though, which was kind of our pinnacle strike, I guess you could say. Yeah. Intergenerational strike. We had business owners, we had uh, students, teachers, grandparents, parents, like everyone really out on the street. And that was really a culmination of um, just how much energy there is for climate justice and standing mm. up to protect the planet. And so it kind of, it did, yeah, it, w- it was hard to kind of rebuild from what was a really yeah. tough beginning to yeah. the movement, as you say, on, on March 15th, tragically. Um, but also, yeah, obviously the lives that were, were lost on that day. So the school strike, a very big kind of part of, I guess, who I am and um, what's almost led me to to be doing what I'm doing now. I'm a councillor on the Kapiti Coast District Council. I was elected at 18 years of age as New Zealand's youngest elected member in That's over amazing. a decade. And honestly, feel so honoured and privileged to do that mahi, like, as a job mm. and get paid to represent my community, to mm. advocate for my community to advocate for the planet and the next generation. Mm. Um, and that's kind of what I do in, in all facets of my life, really. And, um, you know, running around and speaking at various events and um, working alongside young people and students and just really kind of building awareness and raising awareness about the power of their voices and the fact that these decisions that are being made don't just need to be left to the adults. In fact, they shouldn't. Mm. And that we, as kind of the next generation coming through, need to make sure that we're inserting our energy and passion and ideas into the conversation. Mm. So, Where did this amount of energy come from you? Did it come from a really young age? Were your parents also this way inclined around saving, you know, the climate and our environment? What was that sort of aha moment for you where you started pursuing this as a bit of an activist around climate justice? It's actually a really interesting question. So my mum works at Play Centre, so she's very passionate about like creativity and um, just getting out there and learning by doing, I guess you could say. And my dad is a sustainable land use consultant. So since the age of about three or four, I was out planting trees alongside him for his work. Uh, and so I guess in looking back, I can really see those connections to, to how I was brought up and the values that they instilled in me. But funnily enough, like I've only just found out a couple of years ago that my mum was a real staunch Greenpeace activist True. and that my grandma, when she was 22, was on the county council over in the UK. True. For her in area. your DNA. But they, they never even kind of thought to bring those things to my attention because <laughs> they wanted me to find and follow my own path, which I really respect. Um, but it's, it's interesting to kind of... Yeah, better see maybe how that mm. was influenced by the values that they held and the, the willingness they had to just like chase after the change that they wanted to create in the world. And yeah. I think, yeah, that's very much been instilled in me, but in a very kind of non-prescribed way. It's just yeah. been like, you know, they, they've been living their values for ages and yeah. I've been 
observing and noticing that and I guess, yeah, learning from it. So Yeah, it's crazy what you pick up from your parents even when you're not conscious that you're picking them up. It's not till you're older where you're like, oh man, okay, my seeing my mum or my dad leaving the house at 6am in the morning before work actually distilled in a mentality in myself around, you know, getting up every day, showing up, all of that stuff. But it's not until you're older and you reflect back, you're like, oh, there are some traits that you do get from your parents. I think that's exactly, exactly that. Yeah, and I think the same thing could be said too for the community in which I live. Like people are just so full of love and kindness for each other. And there's a real kind of spirit of like, if you have more than you need, you give back. Mm. Uh, If you, you know, see someone who's struggling or you see, you know, an element of the world that needs change, you just get in there and do it yourself. Mm. So I think, yeah, being in that environment and being around people who believe and think those things Mm. has been really helpful in my journey. Yeah. Going back to the school strike for climate, which was the biggest sort of protest or demonstration of activism that I've ever seen in my entire life. It's probably, it was, it's got to be the biggest protest ever, right? In New Zealand history. The biggest single day strike in New Zealand history. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can can you talk us through what was that process around setting this up as a movement and rallying so many people behind one cause? How the hell did you pull something (laughs) like that off? Oh, it's a great question. And it's almost one that I wish I could answer to to, um, yeah, to kind of like better encompass all of the steps to help other people do it as well and to kind of create a playbook so that if people have things that they're passionate about, they can take it and run with it. But um, if I'm being completely honest, it was just a bunch of us young people who had a real kind of, I guess, fear, but also hope for the future. And we were like, holy crap, like we just have to do something. If our leaders aren't going to lead, like what's it going to take? And maybe it's going to take us like Greta Thunberg, Mm. you know, did in Sweden, like we saw the Pacific Climate Warriors rallying around the Pacific. What do we have here in Aotearoa and what do we have for young people to kind of see themselves as a part of? And so we literally searched up on Google, like how do you organise a strike? Who do you need to let know? How good is Google? (laughs) Google is amazing. (laughs) So we, that's literally where we started and, um, We also obviously kind of started through social media, which is an amazing kind of tool that we have access to, but also that can be quite destructive. But for us as a movement, it it was really helpful in mobilising people. So, you know, I vividly remember the day where there were three or four of us just from Kafferty College and we were like, you know what, we're just going to put the call out and um, see if anyone wants to jump on board and helping making this, this strike happen across New Zealand within... A week or so, we had a team of 40 people from across New Zealand who we'd never met from places, some places that I've never even heard of, who said, yep, we're on board, like link us in. And yeah, just the most incredible team was was formed from that initial post on social media. So I think one of the ways though that the messages really reached those people that then like meant that they just Mm. jumped on board straight away was that we really tried to keep our messaging and framing incredibly simple. Like it's just, it's about uniting behind the future that young people deserve, the future that our planet needs to ensure that, you know, that this place is livable for the next generation. Like surely that's something that everyone can get behind. It doesn't Mm. need to be a party issue. It doesn't need to be an issue only for young people. You know, think about your tamariki, think about your mokapuna, think about your environment, your community, the waterways, the you know, the hills, the whenua, like really trying to keep things nice and simple. Mm. So I think that helped. What was the sort of pivotal point where you realised that, holy shit, this is actually going to be a (laughs) fucking massive demonstration of people's ability to sort of stand up and, you know, all sort of link arms. Was there a moment when you're like, okay, this is actually getting really big? There were a couple of moments that kind of culminated in a feeling of both like, severe anxiety going like how the heck are we going to control this (laughs) this like what is gonna (laughs) and what is gonna go down like when you get that many people in a space like oh my gosh and we and we're you know most of our volunteers are young people like how do we ensure their safety how do we how do we keep this all you know all centered around the cause and and all those considerations one of the moments though that was for me a real like whoa, was two days before that first strike on March 15th, I got a call from the Prime Minister's office saying, the Prime Minister wants to meet with you tomorrow. She wants to hold a live Q&A in a school hall. We're thinking this is going to be big and we think that we need to front foot our response to it. And I was like, damn, the Prime Minister's office Mm. is thinking that they need to step up and be answerable to us. 
they must be bloody worried about how many people are going to be yeah. showing up on the, that Prime Minister's doorstep yeah. at the yeah. Beehive in a couple of days' time. So that was huge. And then we also were contacted by quite a few media outlets saying, you know, we want to yarn with you about about what you're up to and the pickup that those stories got and also the, to be honest, the hate that we started to attract mm. from some um, media outlets and people who wouldn't normally engage with kind of climate content or messaging I think that was also for me a real big sign that like the message was getting out to mm. everyone like mm. not only just the converted or like the people who might already be on our side or who might already you know be wanting to show up to the strike but actually it was getting it was going further and, and getting to a wider audience so that was <laughs> a moment where I was like oh <laughs> okay when and when you talk about the hate is that referring to let's say the boomers and the Karens is, is it, was it reaching people like that? And what was the sort of hate that you received? It was definitely reaching people like that. I remember there was, and her name might've even been Karen funnily <laughs> enough, but I got a message. Um, and she, she was also like a, a kind of serial hater. She would just keep yep. messaging me, but yep. she was like, the only water level that's rising is the one in your brain. Like you've got to go sort yourself These out. These private Pe messages to you. Yeah, yeah, to me, to me. So they would find me from oh the media interviews and just like, go absolutely ham. And so there were a few people like that who were just, but to be honest, you know, they're, they're probably the, the anti-vaxxers of the lot, yeah, the yeah. kind of radicalists, the far right well, extremism people. It, yeah, totally. And, if you look at any successful person ever, do you think that they've got time to be sending hate to someone else online? Like, hundred percent, it reflects on them. It not does on, yeah. totally. It, it's no successful person or even happy person I know is sending abusive messages, especially to young people. Mm. Like, fucking get a grip, Karen. Right, honestly, and it, it kind of it did make me feel sad, but not like in myself but just like sad about what she must be experiencing totally. to 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 take her anger out on someone like me or you know my peers and people who are organizing alongside us as well so we had a bit of that we also had I remember having a couple of interviews on the media I had one with Sean Plunkett who oh that guy yeah, yeah. it was bloody intense and after that interview I just was literally in tears I also didn't realize the interview was live he had um, said that he just wanted to have a quick phone call to kind of ask a couple questions. And so I was like, oh, yeah, and, you know, let me know if it's going to be live and if there'll be, you know, an interview following this or if this is the interview. No word was said. And then after I got off this interview, which was, oh, again, I was just about crying through it, someone called me up and said, oh, you did so well on the Sean Plunkett show just now. And I was like, I was, what? I was just on Sean, talking with Sean Plunkett live on Magic Talk Radio. And they were like, yeah. Holy shit. You were. And he was asking questions like, um, you know, do you even understand the law that you're encouraging kids to break? And like, do you, like all these kind of just just questions in, in that he was obviously getting, trying to catch me out. In terms of getting students out of, out school, of school to protest. Yeah, yeah. That's the sort of old school generation of thinking. It's like, mate, have you ever had something which you're not just passionate about, but you've got a responsibility around standing up for this cause around, around climate action? Um, hopefully that sort of thinking can just get fizzled out with time and age. It's the goal. That's yeah. why we've got to get more young people just <laughs> up in there and, and yeah, kind of changing the narrative and, and changing the approach of these, yeah, of the media, I guess, mm. in a sense too, mm. while some, some people within it, yeah. Mm. So 170,000 people showed up mm. to that protest. What were you asking the government to do? So we had four pretty clear demands. The first one being to declare a climate emergency, a nationwide climate emergency, which tick, that's happened, mm -hmm. which is really awesome. And I was also part of the 2019 Youth Parliament that declared a climate emergency, which I think right. also helped to mm. kind of spark the actual <laughs> the actual parliamentarians to go, yeah, okay, we need to also take this on. Um, our second demand was to pass an ambitious Zero Carbon Act into law, um, which would hopefully set New Zealand up to be carbon neutral by 2020, 2040, sorry. It ended up kind of just being, I guess, pushed down the route of going with 2050 because that is in line with our international commitments. But whether it's in line with our obligations as a developed country, which has responsibility to the Pacific, I'm not so sure. Mm. So that was what we were really trying to champion. The other one... Um, 
we had a demand around kind of agricultural emissions. We know that in New Zealand, agricultural emissions account for around half of our total emissions. So it's no good to just kind of quite find quick fixes or um, things around the edge to try and to try and reduce our emissions in that sector. We really need to kind of look at it as a whole and, and think about how we can transform it to reduce its impact and recognising that there are some some things that some farmers are doing which are, are positive and steps in the right direction, but mm. our demand was really around halving the herd and reducing stock numbers. So not just relying on technology to be the silver bullet, but actually, yeah, kind of cutting down the problem at its, at its source. And then the fourth demand was from memory, like two years ago now, three years ago, was around kind of climate finance in the Pacific, so loss and damage. So thinking about currently what the Pacific Islands are having to adapt to with, you know, rising sea levels and severe, severe weather events arriving on their doorsteps and what that means for their culture and their homelands and their infrastructure and um, how, you know, us as a, as a relatively re- well-resourced country can can kind of support them mm. with um, what they're what they're facing. So, mm. and yeah. did the politicians, the people in power, did they listen, or did they yeah. create any action from those demands? It's a tricky one, and and I for a while there was kind of feeling pretty disillusioned because I was like, we got this many people out on the streets, and you you politicians, you know, came out to meet us, and we were just about you know yelling at you, and we we gave you the ideas and the mandate and everything that you could possibly need in my view to do these things and they're not hard things to do like when we look at New Zealand's kind of budget and when we look at how much money is being spent in other areas and when we look at the focus on kind of social well-being which is incredibly important but environmental well-being has to underpin that and intersect with that I kind of felt like for what we had shown that we could do that they did not step up Mm. to the play and actually kind of meet that and so no essentially making their job a lot easier because they actually had the political mandate from having 170,000 people show up right on their doorstep who are all with you with what the what your demands are and yet still nothing that's how we felt and it was like so how many more people do we need to have out Mm. on the streets does it need to be the whole of New Zealand Mm. like what what do you need you know and we can make we can try and make that happen but yeah I mean there were in fairness, there, there was the Climate Emergency Declaration, the Zero Carbon Act, you know, is now a thing which has now produced the Emissions Reduction Plan, which is kind of like a map to to get New Zealand to carbon neutrality by 2050. So there are little things, but yeah. again, they still feel quite like, they still feel quite minor in comparison to the scale of, of the climate crisis yeah. and what we're facing. So yeah. There's a funny thing with like human psychology and just the way that us as people and political systems actually deal with complex and long-term challenges. When there's something very immediate, it's so easy to be reactive and respond, but because something might be, you know, 25, 50 years away, even though we are seeing the impacts now, but when it will get really dire, it's almost like us as humans don't have that ability to see that far into the future and make it such an urgent priority. Mm. What do you think that's about? I completely agree with with that and, and seeing how we responded to COVID. You know, we Perfect example. we locked down, we you know, the whole messaging around that too was that we needed to stay home to save lives and it was very clear to yep. people that that was, you know, a very personal and individual action they could take to contribute to a wider societal response to something that obviously we didn't want to take hold on us. And so yeah, I think it's I think it's a really tricky thing to navigate because in order for us to to kind of capitalise on on that response to to make people see the immediate kind of damage or threat of climate change, I think people need to be far more empathetic and open their hearts and their minds and their eyes to the realities of some people in our world right now. And yes, we might be in New Zealand and yes, we might be, a lot of us might be, you know, pretty privileged and pretty well off. But if we think about, you know, the realities of Indigenous communities globally and especially those in the Pacific, if we were to to imagine ourselves in their shoes, it would be immediate. We would be doing everything we can. They already are. They've contributed barely anything to the global climate crisis, and yet they've got these repercussions of it on their doorsteps. Mm-hmm. So I also feel like it's our inability to 
to recognize the situations that other people are in. Mm. But instead we're in our own little bubbles and we're only acting on what's immediate to us. But what about our global society? What about our, you know, our brothers and sisters overseas? What about our brothers and sisters in New Zealand who are struggling? Like what about, and so I think, I think part of it is that, Mm. but also part of it is, I think the fear that young people feel is because it feels that much more immediate because the future that we will be inheriting is the one that we're creating right now. And so if we don't do these things right now in this moment, we'll be forced to navigate the rest of our lives through, you know, really challenging times of potential resource scarcity, you know, conflict, who Mm. knows, you know, and, and this unstable climate. So I I do think it's a challenge, but it's also a really cool opportunity Mm. to go, okay, this moment Mm. in time is, is super crucial. How can we band together? How can we, you know, unite across across communities and and really like do what's best. How do you think about the situation where New Zealand is such a small player in this space in comparison to other countries around the world? Not saying that we shouldn't do anything, mm. but how do you sort of internalize that with your own thinking around climate justice when thinking about a global community when our biggest polluters are countries like, you know, the United States, China, India, how because you know a lot of the sort of power and influence over this direction of climate change is sitting with probably you know a handful of the top 10 biggest Mm. uh countries how do you sort of think about that it's a good question and i'm actually asked this by a lot of my fellow councillors sitting around the table because they're like oh carpet is only in a small place in new zealand like it needs to be the biggest cities that have the responsibility but imagine if everyone said that, mm. then it would just be the one person at the very top, the the person with the most control, the person you know leading the biggest country, who we would all be pointing to and say it's your job. And and is that does that really uphold our integrity as people, as individuals who have a responsibility to this land and to this place, that we just kind of turf off the blame? Like we we're all a part of bigger systems, broader systems that are perpetuating this climate damage and destruction. So for me, it's more of like a moral thing. Like we, yeah, we we can't just do this by the next generation. It's actually not okay. And also the other thing that's important to think of as well is if, you know, if if no one stands up and and actually leads, then who is going to, who's going to, you know, take us forward? Like New Zealand could be that country and we're pretty well placed in the global scene to actually provide an example for Mm. how positive climate justice can look. And it doesn't have to be this, you know, super massive thing that kind of disrupts everyone's personal life. And it can be like, well, it it may do, but actually for the the better, you know, for Mm. positive. Mm. And yeah, the kind of social gains that we'll see through that as well and through making sure that the right people are involved in designing the solutions Mm. is massive. And so if no one stands up and and leads and we're all just pointing the blame, well, then... Mm. I just don't think we're going to get very far mm. because, yeah, if they don't, if those people who are pointing the blame at don't even see what, you know, what good looks like, mm. then again, we're just wasting a whole lot of time and we we truly don't have time, right? Mm. We have until the end of this decade to halve our emissions. We have until the end of 2050 to be net zero, which is, you know, kind of like accounting for all of our emissions with things that reduce our impact to like planting, planting trees. trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sequestering things, um, sequestering emissions from the atmosphere. But we don't actually have time to just keep pointing, fingers. pointing the blame. Yeah, nah. yeah. I think you summed, summed that up really well. And that gives me, because that's always been something that I've thought. It's like, obviously you don't want to not do anything, but there's so much there's so much on the bigger countries to really step up as well Mm. Um, because we're a little fish in a massive pond. But in saying that, you know, you've got to, you've got to pave the way. And how cool could that be if New Zealand was, was their country? A hundred percent. And it can also feel quite, and I, I honestly, this, this overwhelms me often is like feeling like a real small person and voice in a, in a far greater system and knowing that there are, you know, 100 companies responsible for 70% of global emissions. How can I possibly have any impact in that? But I also think individuals shouldn't necessarily feel like they have to hold the entire burden of creating change in their own lives to to set up our world for, you know, a net zero emissions future. We have a massive role to play in raising our voices and in providing that 
really, really clear and decisive mandate to our leaders. And I think that's where collective action is really, really important. So mm. it can be, it's like a balance between feeling the responsibility and like knowing that we have it and morally like knowing that it's what we need to do right now. But also, yeah, also the fact that we have to do that in our own lives, but also the importance of raising our voices. Yeah. If we go back to the school's climate strike for action, if there's somebody, what do you say to a young person out there right now who's passionate about a certain cause, whether it's homelessness, climate change, mm. youth justice, whatever that might be, what are some of your sort of key messages to them around mobilizing people around the movement? Oh, the first thing would be to just get started. Like if you have a real passion for something that you want to change, don't think that your voice can't be heard or that, you know, you're not the right person to to just spark a conversation around around mobilizing. Like you totally are. And if not you, then who? So just just get to it. The other thing I'd say is that it's really important to kind of find your tribe and to to not feel like you're in it alone. So to spark the conversation, like go for it. But when you start scaling up, make sure you've got people around you with different skill sets and different perspectives who can yeah, who can really like be alongside you and taking things forward and yeah, make use of your kind of social media tools, the tools of those around you. I'm sure people are really happy to kind of mentor you through, mm. through things, ask for help, like mm. ask questions, one, learn. Eh? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I'm always, always open to getting inst Instagram DM from someone who is keen to organize a social action. And if there's anyone I can link them up with or, you know, any questions I might be able to help with, like, I'm so happy to do that. I know so many people who are so yeah, just just get to it, I'd say. And, and yeah, don't kind of let yourself um, sit on that because our world needs more people who mm. are out there kind of chasing justice. Totally. Um, when I think back about the first time that we ever connected or met, I think it was through Inspiring Stories <laughs> yeah. in the Future Leaders Program. And I think I gave you like a cold call and I was like, hey, we're setting up this new, um, we're setting up this new program in Carpety. And were you injured or something at the time? Maybe. Was this Future Leaders Future program? Leaders, the first ever one. I think if we look on our yeah. messages on Facebook, yeah. I'm like hassling yeah. you. Like, have you signed so up funny. yet? Have you signed up? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. What, what has programs like that sort of taught you around getting young people with a collected, collective sort of voice coming together? Oh, so much. Like inspiring stories, the crew there, Future Leaders, you know, the festival, the youth council and Carpity, like there are so many incredible networks of young people. And I guess what it's really taught me is that possibilities are entirely lim limitless. Mm. Like when you get people in a room who have passion and who have drive and who have, you know, connections and yeah, most of all though, that like passion and drive that, yeah, you can, you can quite literally mm. go out there and, and do whatever. Mm. And I think the beautiful thing about that is, I find kind of in like the bureaucratic spaces or like quite systemic places like council, you know, it's, there are always reasons and excuses why things can't happen or why things need to happen at a really slow pace and why they need to be, you know, really process driven and yada, yada, yada. But when I'm in spaces and groups of young people and I've, and it just, it just keeps me grounded mm. in that every single time is like, actually there, there can't be excuses for this kind of work. Like look at what the school strike for climate, right? We mobilize that many people on under a couple of thousand dollars. It's That's not insane. actually money and resource. Yes, it's important, but like it doesn't actually define what we're capable of achieving when we have the right people in a space and the right, people supporting us mm. and I think that's what future leaders really showed me is mm. yeah as young people are, mm. are totally not only the future but are quite literally the ones kind of trying to be at the forefront to create our future today and we mm. need to let them do that yeah yeah totally with going into politics and your journey as a councillor at Kapiti Coast District Council what is that first term like been been like for you was it everything that you thought it would be or was was it totally different to what your expectations were a bit of both like it was it was similar in the fact that it was amazing just kind of having the real mandate and opportunity to get onto the community and and advocate for and on behalf of you know locals and that's just oh like literally the love of my life. I'm so passionate about it. And it's just, yeah, such a, a kind of like fire to keep going because I've got such an amazing community supporting me. Mm. So that element of it, 
yeah, wouldn't have changed a thing. It was exactly how I expected it to be. There's so much though within council environments that at the moment is kind of not the most conducive place to be bringing the kind of thoughts and perspectives that you know, I'm trying to bring to the table where things aren't siloed, where we're, you know, collaborating better with our community and also across council, where we're focused on real transformational actions in the housing space, mm. like council systems and processes just aren't really set up to deliver the kind of solutions at the kind of scale that yep. they need to be. Yep. And so that's been frustrating. And the time that things take to to get to even a point where you're like, cool, this is going to happen. Like, it's just things take ages and I, I kind of thought that was going to be the case but not quite to this extent the amount of reading we have to do that's another thing we've got a meeting this coming Thursday the agenda's you know over 200 pages wow some of our meetings have been 19 hours long and you look back at what we achieved or agreed on at the meeting and it's like was that really the best use of that <laughs> amount of time you know like it sometimes just feels like we're we're treading water yeah we're you know when we've got these We've got people living in cars, you know, we've got like our community centres rotting. We, we need to build a Waikanae library to support our community there because, you know, their, their library had black mould in it. So, so that's gone. And then we're sitting there talking about stuff that does not feel, yeah, that absolutely pales in comparison. And it just, mm. that's the thing that annoys me is it's like we need to get to, get to those like big gnarly conversations mm. and you know, get to just like committing money to where it's most needed. Mm, so, mm. Yeah. Why did you choose local government over central government as that lever for change? For me, I, I mean, part of the reason, one of the reasons is because I just love where I live. Like I love Pakakiriki, I love Roimati and I feel such a connection to, yeah, to, to my community. And so that was a real driver for local government for me. Um, but also because I think there's, I, ha I have confidence in some of the voices who we're starting to see in central government. And when I was looking at who I could vote for in the local government elections, I was like, oh gosh, like, uh, <laughs> I don't feel confident that any mm. of these people whatsoever, any of the candidates, let alone the people who are going to make it onto council, are going to represent, you know, the voice of young people, the need for climate justice, like, mm. holy. And so there were a lot of people who... I knew who were voting for the first time who were like, actually local government seriously needs a shake up. Central government, I feel like we're starting to kind of see that with people like Chloe Swarbrick mm. and Rawiri Waititi and Debbie Ngawira Pekka from the Māori Party. Um, and there's a few awesome Labour MPs in there too. So I kind of I kind of feel like we've, we're starting to get that a bit more sussed, yep. but then local government like we're lagging behind. Yep. You know, I think the, the median age of uh, councillors across New Zealand is something like, you know 60 odd you it's know like crazy. it's just yeah and there are more people named john than there's some weird stat <laughs> about their woman or something and like and you know globally in politics or there's some some random stat like that but it, it paints a picture as to the fact that women specifically young women and also young women of color uh yeah are completely mm. kind of locked out of these spaces or not yeah yeah. Not encouraged to be in them. Yeah, that's a massive conversation altogether. Um, I think when I was working at local government New Zealand, I might have said this at on the podcast that we had with Tamitha, but there was some crazy st statistic where I think 94% of all elected members were over the age of 40. So over, only 6% were, you know, young elected members. Mm. And you could be a young elected member at the age of, you know, 39 or 40. Yeah. No offence to people who are that age, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But it's, it, it's insane that that's what is considered a young person in the local government context. Mm, um, that's crazy. But also the system that's sort of created around local government, you know, it's not there to it's not really there to exist to include other people who aren't either on their pension or older demographic, uh, whether they're like a retired business owner, because the time where, you know, the meetings are taking place, just everything there, it's not there mm. to consider many other uh, demographics or personalities. Um, that's what I've found quite 
sort of challenging looking into it and you're right you look over the bloody voting catalogue when it comes to elections and it's just the same person <laughs> saying the same thing and it's crazy that's the tiny bit of information that you get um, yes. to choose the candidates who are there to represent your community it's, a, it's such an interesting sector isn't it yeah and we've because we've got a local government election you know coming up October the 8th so if you're not you know enrolled to vote or you know you haven't done your research yet we'd definitely recommend doing that but there are some people running who refuse to acknowledge that they have ties to groups like Voices for Freedom. And oh, it's that's like, a big thing at the moment, They don't have eh? to put that in their bio, you know, but, like, if you dig a little bit deeper and check out their social media, you know, you can find some interesting things about what they stand for and, and things that they tend to brush over on, you know, those more kind of, like, formal yeah. channels where most people get their information from. So, yeah, do some research. Do you have any Voices of Freedom candidates up in the Carpety Coast? Yeah, we've got... Well, we've got two who have explicitly been named through staff, actually, who are running for community boards. One of them who is, I think he's the like media spokesperson for doctors speaking out against science or something, like a really kind of fringe thing. I like, don't know why are you a doctor? Like- <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm not even going to search this up because I don't want on my history. Like, I don't want to be doctors. No, that. Yeah, anyway. Um, and then this guy, that, Johnny Best, as well, who's donated a whole bunch of money to Voices for Freedom. Right. And another woman who keeps saying, no, I'm not part of Voices for Freedom because you, you they can't, they don't have members. Like, you can't be a member of Voices for Freedom. And I'm like, so what are you trying to say? Are you trying to say that you tried to become one and then they wouldn't let you? Yeah, or like, yeah, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she refuses to answer the question whether she was at the protests. So that um that doctor yeah. bit sounds interesting. That's like having a group of mechanics standing up against engineering. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like that's like the foundation on which your profession was built. I know. Like what? That is crazy. Um, so they're sort of running a bit incognito, trying to get yes. in under the umbrella. Incognito. Because wasn't there wasn't there a call out through their sort of networks to run and make like NZ ungovernable or something? Yeah, I actually watched last night, which was really interesting. Would recommend watching if you haven't already, this documentary called Fire and Fury and it's been put together by New Zealand On Air. It's kind of like a, um, yeah, a depiction of some of the, some of the people who are kind of perpetuating this like making New Zealand ungovernable idea and the Voices for Freedom people and yeah, they're talking a lot about how local government is a space where they need people with their ideas and to make it ungovernable, we need people who are like speaking out against, you know, injustice and a violation of freedom. And it's really fascinating, though, to better understand their tactics. Wow. And because in, in the weirdest of ways, when I look at how we organise School Strike for Climate and mobilising people through using technology and social mm. media and, you know, Zoom calls of people who we hadn't actually met but who were, were keen to jump on board, a lot of those same tactics they've mm. been using to organise these protests and so it does pain me to think about how protest action and mobilisation might kind of be tainted by the way that they've shown themselves to behave, which mm. is a real shame because we have a right to peaceful protest in this country and, you know, that, that should be respected. And the fact that they've now gone and taken it to this next level and potentially, you know, yeah, stained that that form of activism is a mm, real shame. Mm, fuck, it was just such a crazy time. I remember walking through to get into work and just seeing the amount of like camper vans, cars. And I live just on, you know, the old State Highway 1. And I just remember seeing, it was like something off a movie, literally thousands of cars and trucks going on and, and like tooting and stuff. I was like, what the <laughs> hell is happening? And it didn't take long until you realised that, you know, these people, they weren't just campaigning under the banner of freedom, but they were also campaigning, I believe anyway, around like creating anarchy. Like it was, mm. it was almost like they wanted to, and like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure some of the people there, they were there for the right reasons. Like, look, whether you'd like it or not, there's um, legitimate nurses, doctors, some, some good people who would have lost their livelihoods because they chose not to get the vaccine. Um, but all of that sort of good and well-natured, space which i think is worthwhile to have a debate and have a civil discussion mm -hmm. around um that all got washed out by the crazy extremists there who were probably the majority of the people attending who just wanted to run into parliament and kidnap the prime minister and just like the most outlandish stuff you've ever heard and when they started yeah. gathering a community there i was like fuck this is not going to go away easy this is like yeah. they want to 
they want to truly change the structure and the way that we live in New Zealand, which is pretty scary thought. And some of that like real hateful language and ways of treating people in power, especially kind of people who make themselves quite accessible, which I'd consider the Prime Minister does. You know, yep. she's out and she's out and about and you know, people like Tamitha Paul and Josh mm. Trillin and Porirua City mm. and, and I try and do this as well, like being accessible, you just open yourself up to that kind of criticism you know I I had it a lot on the campaign trail last time around where people were like oh like what do you know you're just a young person like you're just a girl you don't even pay rates you know you you just you're entitled you think you're so entitled to to this conversation and like yet you don't know a thing and and I'm still getting that where people are like you're a joke you're a waste of space you know all this stuff and you're like where is the kindness like oh and and especially when you try and afford that to other people. Like mm. when, you, when you're when you actively trying to be kind in every space, but you're met with hostility from, and, and not from the majority in my case, yeah. but it's just, it's just sad. Yeah, yeah. How do you deal with those sort of comments from, from people in your community or, you know, across the country who might be saying those sort of things to you? I think that's actually a really useful conversation probably to have quite openly. Um, so we can raise that sort of awareness for young people who might be wanting to stand for mm-hmm. council maybe mm-hmm. in the future. So how, like just speaking really transparently, how, how transparently, how has it been for you and what sort of toll has it taken to you as well? It has taken a toll. I have, I, yeah, as you say, we've got to be honest about these things. Mm. And one of the biggest challenges for me has been when I've been, you know, taking the weekend to myself or, you know, a Sunday to myself, you go out on a run and, you know, someone yells at you from the other side of the street and they're like, Sophie, can you come around to my place quickly? I need to show you this pothole that, you know, you need to put in a service request right now. And I'm like, it's a Sunday, you know, like <laughs> it's, it's in a normal job. You wouldn't yeah, be, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you wouldn't You're be expected getting, to be yeah. at work. So yeah. I, so that element of it has taken a toll. And then I also expect myself to be on all the time, mm. you know, like, because you think other people expect that of you. So you put that pressure on yourself and yeah, you, I just have huge expectations of myself, which I think doesn't really doesn't really help either but in terms of dealing with those specific negative comments sometimes you just have a wee cry or you go for a walk and just listen to some music and then you just don't give it any more energy like I tend to just kind of go okay five four three two one yeah done nice you know like it's not really worth it Um, but it yeah sometimes when they first come in you're like what the I don't really this is not what I need right now I was having a good day Mm. like but yeah it doesn't need to affect your day but Mm. it when you look when I look at it kind of when I take a step back and look at it, it probably has affected my perception of myself, but also my expectations mm. on myself. Because it can be, sometimes when you see stuff like that, you can, your brain can almost convince you that it's true, mm. that you need to believe it, but you don't. Like mm. you fully do not need to believe it um, because often it's just not true or it's coming from a real place of hurt on their side. Um, and yeah. yeah, yeah, no, really good points. Um, when you think about the sort of tall poppy syndrome mentality that we have in New Zealand, which we've got some of the worst sort of cases of it, I believe anyway. I, I remember being in primary school and if somebody was good at sport, they were a try hard. It just goes on and on and on where we don't want other people or there's almost like a collective mentality around some people that if someone else is doing better than them, um, it's not fair or uh, yeah, it's such a complex sort of conversation and something which I think everybody can relate to. But under that, I think sits probably imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, Have you ever felt that, you you know, you're you're in the space as a counsellor, you've got a crazy list of achievements behind you. But even because of that, because of your age and perhaps some of this negative Mm. comments and words coming in from external people, has that ever made you limit yourself? Oh, (laughs) like every day. I'm not even joking. Every single day. I, there was a period, especially in the first year when I was, yeah, when I was kind of first elected, where every single time I would go and like press my little button for my microphone to be activated so I could say something, I would be trembling, my heart would be racing so fast, I would, I would fear that people would just like, you know, burst out in laughter, that people would be like thinking in their heads, you know, what the heck is she doing here? Like, how did she, how's she sitting around the same table as us? You know, she doesn't know half the things that we know. And I had, I, I kind of created this like real 
destructive narrative in my own head of like thinking that everyone was just gonna boot me out of this place and thinking that yeah I didn't deserve it for one second and yeah and and that took me a while and to be honest sometimes it still creeps in but just feeling that way is really rough especially when you when you got in there to achieve things and then you feel like you're just being all consumed by this voice that's telling you you can't or that you shouldn't be able to because mm. it's not a space for you. And so you're, then you, like, you're beating yourself up because you're like, no, but I'm trying. But then your head's like, no, but you shouldn't be trying because yeah. you know, then, yeah, then you're just making use of the space that isn't even yours anyway. And yeah. it's just, yeah, it's, it's so real. Like mm. I, yeah, I, I, I couldn't name the mm. amount of times mm. where I've felt like that or where mm. I've just like nerves have overcome me too because I'm like, oh, I know that people are expecting me to, you know, I don't know, speak in this way or like say something inspiring. Yeah. Or, but it's like that's, I'm just a normal person, yeah. like just like all of us. It's not, there's nothing, yeah, there's literally nothing special about me that brought me to this place. Mm. It's just a whole lot of things culminated mm. and the fact that I decided that I wanted to be in there and that I wanted to help contribute. Mm. Like that's what took me there, not a whole lot of like, I don't know, things that make me who I am, whether that's like awards that people might think that, you know, is what make makes mm. us who we are. Mm. It just, yeah, I think we gotta gotta realise that we're all just human and I'm very much one of them. Yeah, yeah. And when it, I, I, it's a sort of regular conversation that I have with guests on the podcast is around imposter syndrome and how do you beat those sort of demons in your head which are mm. saying no Sophie or no Noah don't do it you're mm. doing shit today like you've got nothing positive <laughs> to say and I think what I've learned so far doing this podcast because even talking to people like J- Jahan Casanada oh, you know journalist of the year I was fucking terrified getting him on because he's like his job is to interview people and I had to interview him I was like oh my god what if I fuck up but um I asked him the same question I was like do you suffer imposter syndrome because someone from the outside looking in he's the most confident you know cool as ever sort of dude under pressure when he's either interviewing the prime minister or running massive stories and he's like yeah I still get those feelings every single day mm. so hopefully that hopefully that can give some people some sort of relief is that it's not just you feeling that I think everybody I think Jacinda Ardern's even come out and said that she she when she first became prime minister still probably now she's probably deals with like imposter syndrome. Mm. I think it's just a weird natural thing which so many of us feel. Yeah, 100%. And that's that's actually really reassuring that Gian yeah. also, because I, I look up to, up to him majorly. Same. Like he's incredibly inspiring. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just, I guess we just got to help help each other, support each other with the tools that that kind of change that narrative and also make sure that we're we're building each other up. Like mm. if we notice someone that's doing really amazing work or we, you know, think of someone throughout our day and we want to, you know, send them a wee vote of confidence or support, like do those things. It's not weird. You mm. know, I, I try and do that as often as I can. Like if someone comes into my head or I, um, you know, I, I see something that they've done or I'm admiring their work, like just send them a message because you don't know how much it'll mean or, or what might be going on inside their head. Totally. Despite what you might see on the outside. Yeah. Sometimes the inside's a bit different. Yeah, no, it's such a good point. I think um, Israel Adesanya, the UFC middleweight champion from New Zealand, he had a really good speech when he won the Hel- Helberg Sportsman of the Year, probably a couple of years ago. I'll totally butcher it but I'll include it in one of the in one of the podcasts um he said something around like if you win I win like let's mm. lift each other up and he was yeah. just calling out that sort of mentality around um beating people down and you never know what a message in the day can can really do to somebody yeah oh that's cool mm. you and I win yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send if it to you, you after rise, the podcast yeah, yeah cool stuff yeah, like that um before we wrap up we'll end with some really short quick fire questions and then a bit of a quote but before we do um i see you looking at the questions you're not you're not supposed <laughs> sorry, to sorry <laughs> sorry <laughs> see this is probably almost like an imposter syndrome thing creeping in because i'm like oh my gosh no i need to have like pre-prepared answers so people don't no, think no, no, i don't no, no, know no. what i'm you talking about what, or i'm just making crap them. up on the spot okay <laughs> <laughs> um but, be, but before we wrap up um where can people stay in touch with you and your mahi and feel free to do a plug for your campaign cool so Instagram at Sophie underscore Hanford, Facebook, you can add me on Facebook, like my personal page, Sophie Hanford, or 
you can search up Sophie Hanford for Pakekiri Hiraumati, which is the ward I'm running for re-election in. I've got a website, sophiehanford.co.nz, which is mainly for my council campaign, but you know, you can find my email address on there or yeah, LinkedIn or just, I don't know, search me up on Google and you cool. might find some links. <laughs> Sweet. Um, and how can people get enrolled to vote, to potentially vote for you or if they're in other places around the country, how do they get involved? Oh, amazing question. So if you go on to vote.nz, I think is the, the link URL, mm-hmm. then you can yeah, just literally like make sure that you're eligible to enroll and then go through the process. I'm pretty sure you can enroll online actually, mm. which is pretty easy. Um, and then, yeah, head on through that process. And then on the 16th of September or shortly thereafter, you'll receive voting papers in the mail. So local government elections are postal postal votes. So you receive that in the mail and then you've got until, you know, early October to fill out your forms and and send your papers back in the post. So cool. yeah, head online to make sure you're enrolled or to enroll if you're not, and then await your voting papers very eagerly. And when you get them, make sure to fill them out quickly and return them. Awesome, love it. Um, okay, some quick fire questions. Sophie Hanford, what is the meaning of life? Oh my gosh, <laughs> okay. Straight off the bat. Okay, okay. Hmm. The meaning of life for me is to have fun and to find peace like I'm just all about you know making making the most of the moment this is all we have let's do everything we can both through having fun and through building a society of peace and love for people on the planet love it advice you wish you knew about when you were younger oh I wish I knew that not everyone has their shit together and that it's actually okay to you know be struggling with things or to have questions or to you know, to just not know where you're going or what you're up to and to just learn as you go. Like, that's completely fine. Don't be afraid to be in the deep end uh, and just know that there will be people around you who will support you, who already are supporting you, who you might not even know and just trust in that and trust in the process. Love it. What does legacy mean to you? Uh, legacy means means a lot to me. That's a whole lot of why I do the mahi that I do. When we think about, you know, the next generation, the generations that will follow, legacy is all about I guess when, yeah, when the kind of last moments of life come for me, like knowing and having faith and trust and that I've done everything I can to make my corner of the world even a tiny bit better. Mm. If you could change one thing in New Zealand, what would this be? Oh, (laughs) if I could change one thing in New Zealand, I would make us fossil fuel free. So I would make public transport free. Um, I would do all of the things that, that would enable us to not rely on fossil fuels anymore. Um, and yeah, that would completely deharmonize Aotearoa in, let's go with like two years. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And last one, what do you believe is the main thing that is holding back young people in New Zealand? I think it's self-belief and self-trust. I fully think it's things that are in our own heads. It's obviously also um, structural things, but I think we're we're almost reinforcing those by believing things about our place in society that don't need to be true mm. and that shouldn't be true. So yeah, I would say let's just break down those walls inside our own head to, to give us that kind of thirst to break down the walls in society that are perceived to be holding us back and that, yeah, we need to, we need to break down. Boom. Love it. Okay, cool. We'll end on a uh, quote from Greta Thunberg. Is it Thunberg or you pronounce it different when you oh, said it earlier? See, I don't know. I think when you say it in like a Swedish accent, it's like Greta Thunberg. Thunberg. Okay, yeah. from Greta Thunberg. <laughs> there we go. Um, you say nothing in life is black or white, but that is a lie. A very dangerous lie. Either we prevent 1.5 degrees of warming or we don't. Either we avoid setting off that irreversible chain reaction beyond human control or we don't. Either we choose to go on as a civilization or we don't. That is as black as what black and black or white as it gets. There are no great areas when it comes to survival. Mm. Boom. Thank you, Sophie. Boom. Thanks, Noah. <laughs>